All right, good evening. Welcome to all of you. We are continuing our Bible study that we've been doing for some time now, Reasons to Believe. And we're coming now to a new section. This is actually part six, if you're following along in the notes that we provided. And this is a real powerful section. And as I've been working on this this past week, uh, I was getting so blessed just going through the scriptures. And what we want to look out tonight is one of the strongest of all the evidences of divine inspiration in the scriptures, the Bible. And what we want to begin to look at tonight, and it's going to take several weeks at least to go through this part, is the whole subject of fulfilled prophecy. This is a huge subject, and we're only going to skim the surface in a few weeks' time. It would really take us months and months to go through all that is in the Bible on this topic. But as we've gone through the different parts of this Bible study, what we're trying to do is both strengthen our own faith, and as we saw in 1 Peter 3, be prepared to give an answer to an unbeliever or someone who might question us concerning our faith and hope in Christ. Why do we believe? What do we believe? Where do Christians get their faith from? And as we've been seeing, this is not a blind faith. We have reasons to believe in Jesus Christ. And there are actually more reasons to believe in him than to not believe in him. And there are certainly more reasons to believe in Jesus than to believe in any other idol, any other god, or any other kind of religion that comes down the pike. And this section, I believe, if you follow along with us, uh, it's just going to overwhelm you when you begin to see with such exactness how prophets of old predicted things hundreds of years before they took place. It's absolutely absurd to think that all of these predictions could have just been lucky guesses. And as we're going to see right up front here, God himself points to fulfilled prophecy as one of the strong evidences that he and he alone is the God of the universe. We saw that in the case of the creation, God points to that as evidence of who he is, and he challenges all the false gods to come forward, show me your power, and create the universe like I did. And the same kind of a thing we'll see here tonight, that God has deliberately, over the centuries, made very clear and specific predictions about the future so that when those predictions come to pass, it would be proof that he is God and that his word is divinely inspired. So we want to look tonight at the subject of fulfilled prophecy. It's one of the strongest evidences that the Bible is not just a religious book, but it's divinely inspired, it's infallible from Genesis to Revelation, and just as prophecies of old that have already been fulfilled 
prove to us the trustworthiness of God and his word, the prophecies that are in the Bible that are yet to be fulfilled, we can put the same kind of confidence in those that they will also come to pass. In the book of Isaiah, I want to begin with a number of passages here, and you have to understand a little bit about the setting. The prophet Isaiah was speaking to a culture very much like our own. It was filled with idolatry. Even the people of Israel had turned to all kinds of idols made of wood and stone, and they were bowing down to these false gods and worshiping them. And so one of the prophet Isaiah's assignments was to confront that spirit of idolatry. And surely in our culture today, um, the, the, the whole atmosphere of the world is, is infested with this spirit of idolatry, all kinds of false gods, false religions. You can worship whatever god you want, and some people have many, many different gods, and we're told that all religions uh, lead to the same place, so it really doesn't matter whether you're a Buddhist or a Muslim or an atheist or a Christian. We're all going to end up in the same place. Well, uh, I think we'll see in some of the prophecies that Isaiah makes that it doesn't work that way. And the true God who made the universe, who speaks to us through his word, has given many, many predictions about future events so that we will know he is the one and the only true God. No other God, and I'm using little g, no other God can make the kinds of predictions that God has made down through the centuries in his word and with perfect 100% accuracy, every one of them has been fulfilled. So let's begin in the book of Isaiah, chapter 41, and let me again say that the notes for each one of these Bible studies is found on our church website. Uh, this latest part should be up there within the next day or two. This is part six, Fulfilled Prophecy, and you can find those at www.new-life-ministries.org and just look for the sermons and messages and it'll direct you uh, to the right place. All of these messages are also recorded and the audio files uh, for previous ones can be found there and this one will be uploaded within the next day or two. All right, here we go. And I would strongly recommend you get the notes, especially for this study, because it's quite long, and I make no apologies. We're probably going to look in the next few weeks at about 170 different scriptures. And God isn't playing around on this subject of prophecy. He wants us to know with absolute certainty that his word can be trusted, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies, we're only going to look at some of them found in the Bible, have already come to pass. Here we go. Isaiah 41, starting at verse 21. And the Lord is speaking here. 
Isaiah 41, starting with verse 21. He says, Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Bring in your idols to tell us what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were, so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds, so we may know that you are gods. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. Now, the diviners and soothsayers and so-called fortune tellers, uh, they make all sorts of predictions, astrologers and the astrology column in the newspaper, which, by the way, I hope you're not paying any attention to any of that foolishness. Uh, once in a while, they may get a little prediction right. And maybe it's luck or chance, or maybe demons are helping them once in a while to know a little bit about some future event. But listen carefully to God's challenge here. Bring your idols in. Bring all your religions, bring all your false gods, bring all the false prophets, bring all the leaders of all the religions, bring them all in, and we'll sit you down and you tell us the end from the beginning. You predict the future, tell us all the final outcome, quoting verse 23, tell us what the future holds, and then we'll know that you are gods. So, this whole idea of telling the future is very, very important to us, and it's very important to God. And he himself appeals to this whole process of making predictions about the future and then watching them come to pass as the ultimate proof that he is the one and only true God. Present your case. Set forth your arguments. Bring in your idols to tell us what is going to happen. Well, God has told us many, many times and on many different occasions, he's told us ahead of time what's going to happen. And when it comes to pass, this is to cause us to fear God. Notice what it says again in verse 23. Tell us what the future holds so we may believe, so that we may know that you are gods. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. Well, there's a good kind of a fear that we should have toward God, and I think as we move through this Bible study, you're going to begin to tremble before him as you see how awesome he is in the kinds of predictions that he has made often hundreds of years or even thousands of years before they take place and with pinpoint accuracy every detail is fulfilled. Also in Isaiah chapter 44, by the way I love to read just from Isaiah 40 right through to chapter 49. Just read chapter after chapter and it's just God talking about his awesome power 
challenging all the idols and all the false gods. And so, continuing in that same spirit, in Isaiah 44, beginning with verse 6, we'll read down to verse 8. Isaiah 44, from 6 to 8. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. Backing up to verse 7, God says, Who then is like me? And again, he's challenging any of the false gods, any of the idols to come forward. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people. And, note these words, what is yet to come. Let him lay out before me what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. And I think God would challenge all of the false gods of our day, the gods of money and riches and power, the gods of sex and pleasure, the gods of Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism. Yes, come forward and tell us about the future. Give us predictions concerning what is to come and do it with perfect accuracy. Of course, none of them can do such things. Only the living God can foretell the future. And that's why this study is so important. God is laying the groundwork here for the importance of fulfilled prophecy. Can anyone else do what I do? Let him tell what is yet to come. Let him foretell the future. Two other passages while we're here in Isaiah. Um, Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46, starting with verse 9. I don't know about you, but I can feel the power of God when we read these verses. God has authority. God has power when he speaks. And none of the other so-called gods have this kind of power and authority. Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east, 
I summon a bird of prey from a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Now we need to study these words very carefully. Listen to what God is saying. I am God, there is none like me. I make known, that's a key phrase, I make known the end from the beginning. Now, God didn't have to do that. He didn't have to tell us anything ahead of time. He didn't have to give us any prophecies, even those that have already been fulfilled, let alone prophecies for our future. He didn't have to do that. He doesn't have to tell us anything about the future at all. But this is who God is. He likes to make known his plans and his purposes so that when they come to pass, we can look back and say, God is faithful. God is true. There is no other God besides him. I am God. There is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. This is what prophecy is all about. It's making known what is yet to come, revealing to us future events that have not yet taken place. No one else can do that but God. I think we all understand that. That is a divine quality that only God can claim. He knows the end from the beginning, and he makes it known. He reveals it to us through his prophets, and it's recorded for us in his scriptures. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. And I like this verse 11, and we're going to come back to this thought a little later on. God says, from the east, I summon a bird of prey from a far-off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. God can do anything he wants. The Bible says he can move the heart of a king just like a faucet of water. He can call a heathen king out of nowhere to fulfill his purpose. And we'll see a very clear example of that later on in the book of Isaiah. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. And one last portion of scripture while we're here in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 48. We've looked in 41, 44, 46, and now we're going to Isaiah chapter 48. And starting with verse 3, we will read down to verse 6. Isaiah 48, 3 to 6. God is speaking. He says, I foretold the former things long ago. Now, you've got to think about that for a minute. These are former things. These are history now. They're things that have already happened, but before they happened, God foretold them. 
a very interesting sentence. I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them, and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. Many times, hundreds of years ahead of time, God revealed certain events. He even named people by name hundreds of years before they were born, and then suddenly he acts, and the prophecy is fulfilled. The things that he foretold, they come to pass. Verse 4, For I knew how stubborn you were. The sinews of your neck were iron. Your forehead was bronze. Therefore, I told you these things long ago. Before they happened, I announced them to you so that you could not say, My idols did them. My wooden image and metal god ordained them. You have heard these things. Look at them all. Will you not admit them? This last scripture we're reading, I think, is so relevant to our day. We, we live in such an ungodly culture now, where there's so little regard for God and for the things of God and certainly for the people of God. And to many, God is a joke. He's mocked in the nightly news and so many books and movies and plays and songs are written to mock God like he's a fool or some non-entity. And God is speaking very clearly to the culture of our day that is so filled with unbelief and idolatry. He's saying you need to pay attention to fulfilled prophecy and explain how all of these things have happened. How is it possible that so many events have been foretold hundreds of years ahead of time by God's prophets, and then when they come to pass, who did that? Let me read verse 5 again. Therefore, and in the context, he's saying, because you're so stubborn, because you're so stuck in your unbelief, I told you these things long ago, before they happened, I announced them to you so that you could not say, my idols did them. You see, God is very deliberate about fulfilling prophecy so that we're only left with one option, and that is to bow down and surrender to the one true living Jehovah God. It's to deliver us from all idolatry, from all unbelief, from even entertaining any ideas that these things came about by random chance. You know, evolution is an idol. It's one of the big idols of our day. And people worship this idol that somehow this, this god of random chance just break, brought about the universe with all of its complexity, the sun, the moon, the stars, the plants, the animals, all the wondrous things around us, that this God of evolution over millions of years just 
caused all of these things to happen by chance. What foolishness. When we look at the things and take an honest assessment, there's no way we can attribute these things to idols. The same is true with fulfilled prophecy. When a prophet of God declares such and such and such is going to happen in such and such a month, on such and such a day, in such and such a town, and hundreds of years pass, and then it takes place with pinpoint accuracy, we are left with one response. There is a God in heaven who is working out his plans and purposes in the earth, and he has made known ahead of time what he wants to do. I told you these things long ago, God says. Before they happened, I announced them to you so that you could not say my idols did them, rather so that you would worship God and declare he is the only true God. And I want you to pay close attention to the the challenge that God makes in verse 6. And I think this is something that we're all going to experience as we go through this Bible study. God says, you have heard these things. Look at them all. Will you not admit them? So we're not going to be able to look at them all, but we are going to look at quite a few detailed predictions and prophecies that God has made and see how they have been fulfilled in human history. And we have to decide, how did all this happen? Is it chance? Is it luck? Um, or is there a sovereign God behind all of these events and he wrote these things down ahead of time so that we would fear him. You have heard these things. Look at them all. Will you not admit them? And many of the prophecies that we're going to be looking at in this Bible study, the fulfillment of them in human history is indisputable. There's not even any question about the fact that these things have now taken place and if you've been with us from the beginning of this Bible study, many of these prophecies were written down in the Old Testament scriptures hundreds of years before they could have possibly taken place. So there was already a written record before any of these things took place. And the section we did on the authenticity of the scriptures you would do well to go back and review that and understand the overwhelming documentation we have in writing. That's what Scripture means. It's something written down. Overwhelming documentation of all of these predictions. Now, a false prophet can publish a big, thick book filled with predictions, but if they don't all come to pass, the Bible says, disregard him. Don't pay any attention to his predictions. Even the weathermen, they try to make predictions, and you notice they usually use percentages. 60% chance of rain. So if it doesn't rain, 
they were still 40% right. So, I mean, they try their best using technology to come up with predictions, but God doesn't give us a 60% chance that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem and he'll be from Nazareth. These are exact predictions made by prophets of old hundreds of years before anyone could have possibly known how these events were going to take place. Now, in the next few weeks, we're going to break this down into several different parts. We're first going to take a brief look, and I really do mean that word brief, uh, just a brief look at prophecies in the scriptures concerning nations, kingdoms, and empires. There's a lot in the Bible about different nations and empires. We're just going to skim the surface. And then we're going to look at probably the most important aspect of fulfilled prophecy, and that is what is usually termed messianic prophecy. Prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah, concerning the Christ, the Anointed One, and whether or not those prophecies were all fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So tonight we want to look briefly in this first section, prophecies concerning nations and empires. You know, the Bible is very clear that nations come and nations go. And their rise and fall are both predicted and controlled by God. And God has said a lot in his word concerning the future of various kingdoms. And I want to start this whole section by turning to the prophet Jeremiah. And you know, just a side note, the United States where we live um, is still arguably the greatest and wealthiest nation on the face of the earth. But the leaders of the United States would do very well to study some of these scriptures because uh, history is replete with examples of nations that became great and then God uprooted them and destroyed them. And God can make a nation rise and God can certainly make a nation fall in one day, in one single day. Jeremiah 18, beginning with verse 7. God is speaking here. And notice again, none of the false gods can speak with this kind of authority. Only the true and the living God can speak words like this. He says, If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of his evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. We have a perfect example of that in the book of Jonah, where Jonah prophesied to the great Assyrian capital of Nineveh, in 40 days, God is going to destroy you. Well, they repented, they fasted, they prayed, they turned to God, 
and God relented of the judgment that he had determined for them because their heart changed. But let me read this again carefully, and this certainly applies to the United States and a number of other great nations in the world today. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, believe you me, God is trying to warn America for all of its adultery, all of its homosexuality, all of its idolatry, all of its blasphemy, and and on and on I could go with the list. God is warning America. If that nation I warned repents of its evil, this is the only solution for America and many of the other nations in the world. It's not government. It's not more money. It's not more government programs. It's repentance. We need to repent. The nation needs to repent of its evil. This country is being overrun now by gangs, violence, random shootings we hear almost every night in the news. Vile acts of violence are taking place on the streets across America. Even in cities that didn't know violence, we're seeing these things. If that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if, at another time, I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. You know, looking at history, there's no doubt God had a plan for this nation of the United States to bless it, to make it the greatest nation on the face of the earth, that out of this nation, hundreds and thousands of Christian missionaries would go forth to the four corners of the earth, proclaiming the greatness of God, preaching the good news of the gospel. However, with all of the good that God has intended for this nation, if we continue down the road we're on, God will certainly reconsider. He says he will reconsider the good he had intended to do for it. I think you can understand very clearly, just from reading these few lines in Jeremiah, the power that God has over the nations. You see, we think we have so much power Those politicians that are in positions of authority in governments, they think they have so much power, and they do have some authority that God has delegated to them. We learn that in Romans chapter 13. However, none of these presidents or dictators or prime ministers or rulers or kings can determine the destiny of their nation. Only God can do that. So nations come, nations go. Nations rise, nations fall. And very often, these things are foretold ahead of time in the scriptures. And we can now look at history 
and ask a question. How accurate were the predictions? Was Jeremiah true? Was Isaiah true? Was Jonah true? Can we trust these prophets and the scriptures they've left behind for us? Coming back to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, God has something to say here about the nations. Isaiah 40, verses 15 to 17. Surely the nations, and that would include the United States, Great Britain, Germany, France, Russia, China, India, you name it. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. You know, in our arrogance and pride, we think we're so great. We think we're so mighty. And look what God says. Regarded as worthless, less than nothing. The nations are like a drop. They're regarded as dust on the scales. And I know some listening tonight, including my wife beside me here, come from islands. Well, he has something to say about islanders also. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. So America is dust. Sri Lanka is fine dust. Putting them all together, they're less than nothing. God can do whatever he wants with the nations of the world. Paul told the uh, Greeks in Athens that all of the nation's boundaries have been predetermined by God. This isn't, this stuff doesn't happen by accident. This is all purposed and planned and preordained by God so that we would fear him, so that we would humble ourselves and seek him. The greatest nation that God ever raised up was and is the nation of Israel. And it is an amazing testimony to God. And the birth of Israel, the existence of Israel to this day, is a loud testimony to the faithfulness and the sovereign power of God. And so many prophecies, so many predictions were made hundreds of years ahead of time concerning the nation of Israel, so that when these things took place, they and we would tremble before an all-powerful God who determines the destiny of the nations. I want to look just briefly and literally this has to be brief because we could spend days and weeks just looking at the history of Israel and prophecy concerning Israel. But 
I'll try to keep this brief, but not so brief as to skip over important details. In Genesis chapter 12, we can trace back to the beginnings of the nation of Israel, and of course, in the person of Abraham. Here, of course, he's still called Abram. God eventually changed his name from Abram to Abraham. But in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, this is where we really see the beginnings of the nation of Israel. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's no accident or coincidence that in the previous chapter of Genesis, Genesis 11, we read the account of the Tower of Babel and how God scattered the peoples and confused them with all kinds of different languages. And the reason for that is they were all united as one people and they were building a tower and their own declaration was we're going to build a tower that reaches heaven so that we may make a name for ourselves. Notice the spirit that was behind that project. It was all about self. It was all about pride and ego. We're going to do this to make a name for ourselves. Well, they would have been a great nation, one great nation, filling the earth, had God allowed them to continue in their pride and selfish works. But of course, God came down, saw what they were trying to build, destroyed it all, and scattered them to the four winds. Now, in the very next chapter, God comes along with his real plan. His plan is not for you and me to build a tower and make a name for ourselves. His plan is revealed to Abraham in the following words, I will make you into a great nation. I will make your name great. Isn't that interesting? The people at Babel, they wanted to make a name for themselves. God's answer is, when there's a father like Abraham, I can make his name great. And I can make of him a great nation. So this is the first time we have this prediction made by God that he's going to make a nation. Nations don't just come about. We already saw that in Jeremiah and Isaiah. Nations are brought about by the sovereign will of God. And every nation on the face of the earth exists because God gave them existence. 
They're not there by accident. He foreordained each and every nation to come into existence. But certainly in the case of Israel, from the very beginning, before there was even a nation, he announces, I will make you, Abram, into a great nation. And I will bless you. And when this nation forms, something else very interesting is going to happen. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but human history is full of examples of how this word has been fulfilled. Look at the nations in the earth that have blessed Israel, and look at the nations that have cursed them, and see where they are in world history today. More about that later. Let's stick with our point here. God is going to bring about a nation. We don't know its name yet. We will eventually find that it will be the nation of Israel. And as you trace this from Genesis 12 onwards, through Father Abraham, and then through Isaac, and then through Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, by the time we come to the book of Exodus, God has fulfilled this prediction, and they've become a great and a powerful nation. But along the way, right here in Genesis, hundreds of years before they even became a nation, God makes a number of other predictions. Going to Genesis chapter 15, God predicts not only the formation of the nation of Israel, he predicts that they will be slaves in a foreign country for 400 years. And this prediction is made to Abraham. Abraham was a prophet, by the way. He's called a prophet. This prediction was made to Abraham 200 years before it actually took place. And notice the details that God gives to Abraham concerning these predictions. Moving up now to Genesis 15. Genesis chapter 15, beginning with verse 13. Then the Lord said to him, that's to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. Not 300, not 500, 400. Notice the exact details that are given in these predictions. Your descendants are going to be in a strange country. They're going into another country, not their own, and they're going to become slaves. They will be enslaved, and they will be mistreated 400 years. Ah, but there's more. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out 
with great possessions. Two other details. Besides being slaves in a foreign country for 400 years, when they have completed that 400 years, I'm going to bring them out. So he predicts their deliverance out of that nation. They will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, back to the land of Canaan. So another detail. They're going to a foreign country. They're going to be enslaved for 400 years. I will deliver them out of slavery. I'm going to bring them right back to this same place where you are right now, Abraham, to the land of Canaan. And when I bring them back, they will come back with great wealth, with great possessions. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. If you do the math, at the time this prediction was given to Abraham, up until the time that we read the fulfillment of all this in the book of Exodus, about 200 years pass. So this is a lot to predict and just get lucky 200 years ahead of time. You're going into a foreign country. You're going to be slaves there. You're going to spend 400 years there. You're going to be delivered after 400 years. What are the chances after being slaves for 400 years of that slavery ending? You might as well just remain there as slaves. Coming out after 400 years, coming with great possessions, and coming back to the land of Canaan. There's a lot there that God is predicting. Well, when we come to the end of Genesis, we start to see the wheels turning. Things are starting to be set up in the life of Joseph when he's betrayed by his brothers, sold as a slave into Egypt. He becomes second in command over Egypt. And finally, all of his family moves down to Egypt during the famine, and Israel begins to flourish and prosper in a foreign country, namely in Egypt. And then in Exodus chapter 1, we read how they eventually become slaves in Egypt. And finally, in Exodus chapter 12, we read about their deliverance out of the slavery and bondage of Egypt, and note these words in Exodus 12, verses 40 and 41. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. Just a lucky guess, right? 400 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. And we're not going to read them, but in verses 35 and 36, we see the fulfillment of another part of the prophecy 
that when they come out of that foreign country, they will come with great possessions. We're told in verses 35 and 36 that they plundered the Egyptians, and the Egyptians gave them whatever they asked for. They came out with great wealth, with gold, with silver, with expensive clothing, with jewels, and all kinds of wealth. So, every single part of the prophecy that was given to Abraham back in Genesis 15 is fulfilled 200 years later. As God had predicted to Abraham, Israel did eventually become an exceeding great and powerful nation, and under King David and King Solomon, they were literally the greatest nation on the face of the earth. So from Genesis 12 up to the time of David and Solomon, God fulfilled every word of his promise to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And now to this final part of that original prediction that God made to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And nations like the U.S. and England need to pay close attention to Genesis 12.3, because there's a, there's a slow and gradual movement now in the world for all of these nations to distance themselves from Israel. And we know that there are other prophecies yet to be fulfilled in these last days where all of the nations on the earth, U.S. included, England and France included, will turn their backs on Israel. Israel will eventually have to stand alone against all of its enemies, and God will defend her. But nations like the U.S., England, France, and others that in the past have been friends and allies of Israel, look at how God has blessed them. Nations like Egypt, Babylon, which is now modern Iran and Iraq, Assyria. Look at what's going on in Syria. My God. Rome. I just talked to a pastor who was recently in Rome. He says, all we saw was ruins. Everywhere you go, you look at ruins. Well, that's the story of Rome. Where, where is the great Roman Empire that once ruled the earth? Gone. Nazi Germany. Look at where they were and where they are, and look at the many Arab and Muslim nations in the Middle East today that hate Israel and want nothing more than to destroy Israel and wipe her off the map. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. These nations that have uh, persecuted Israel, persecuted the Jews, you can go right down the list. Look at how greatly they have suffered defeat and humiliation. Just look at what happened to Nazi Germany 
at the end of World War II after slaughtering six million Jews. God's decree of blessing and cursing in Genesis 12.3 still stands today. Make no mistake about it. In numerous prophecies, and there are literally too many for us to begin to list, God promised Israel great prosperity, great peace in the promised land if, and there was a condition, if they remained faithful to him. However, he promised great judgment, suffering, and worldwide dispersion if they forsook him. And I'm going to end it there tonight. And next time we're going to pick it up here looking at how wonderfully God fulfilled hundreds of prophecies concerning the nation of Israel, but how he also had to fulfill predictions that he made about what would happen to them if they forsook him and if they turned to false gods and idols. The word of the Lord is true. And every prediction, every promise, every foretelling that God has made in the scriptures with 100% certainty, we can know that all of these things will indeed come to pass. Let's pray tonight. Oh, Father God, we worship you. We tremble before you. We tremble at your awesome, powerful word. Lord, no other God speaks like you with such power and authority, power over nations, power over destinies, power over the future. And Lord, there is no one like you who knows the end from the beginning and makes known the end. You make known to us future events so that after they have come to pass, we would trust you, we would fear you, we would know that you are the one and the only true God. Lord, your word is true. The scripture cannot be broken. Father, I pray for everyone participating in this Bible study, those that may be listening through the internet or listening in the future through recordings. Let them know with certainty that every word of God is true. We can take you at your word and everything that you have decreed from Genesis to Revelation is true. And you, Almighty God, can be trusted. We thank you and we praise you tonight. We pray your peace, your protection, your blessing over each and every one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.